This is for Andy. <laughs> I'm remembering from last week. Were you out in the Central Valley this week? Going up to Nevada next week. So this is for you and all of us during these times. From Wendell Berry, wonderful poet. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and, and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So lots of people are experiencing despair um, for the world, and it's growing. And so we never want to forget that right in the middle of it all, we can, we can go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. Now, where is that? That is right where you're sitting. This is back to nature. This is the Dharma, back to the way things are, back to the, the immediate reality of the present moment, back to the, back to the Buddha, the back to the Buddha nature, which is awake. And it seems like a strange topic, but I circle around to this every few months uh, to the topic of happiness, joy. It sounds almost like a strange word right now. <laughs> no. But I know you're here because you want, you like all human beings, all maybe all sentient beings, all beings who draw breath, everybody wants to be happy whatever their version of happiness is. And well, and every being, it's so obvious that every being wants to be free of suffering, wants to feel safe, wants to, wants to be alive, wants to thrive. So that's, that joins us all. So we never think that we're the only one that's caught up in trying to be happy. But I think it's always instructive to look at what the wisdom teachings say, and specifically, and, you know, in this context, what the Buddha said about being happy, because that was one of his names, besides being the Tathagata, the one who knows the, the suchness of life, just the isness of life, who's, who's mingling in touch with, with reality, and just in the direct experience of, of what's sometimes called suchness, Tathagata. He was also called Sukhiya, Sukhiya means the happy one. Uh, so he's often referred to as the happy one. Now, of course, many people have the association with the Buddha of, 
of suffering. Uh, because the way that the teachings were disseminated, the way the wheel of the Dharma was turned when he gave what's called the, the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, he, the first thing he talked about was the fact that our life has, as part of our life, things that are really hard to bear, suffering. It's part of everybody's life. And people sometimes forget that he was trying to share it in the context of what feeds us being caught in the cycle of suffering in this life is the, uh, the habit of our mind to be in constant reaction to the, what's happening in our life, constantly wanting what we don't have and constantly not wanting what we do have. A chronic state of dissatisfaction that's, that's just fed by this constant craving for different, new, becoming, for being consumers of experience that it actually keeps us in a state of dissatisfaction. And then he, he went on to say, there's an end to this. People sometimes don't realize you can actually step off the wheel of suffering and the causes of suffering. So there, he's basically saying there is happiness. And then he finally says, following that, he says There's, there is a, a way that you can live your life encompassing every aspect of your life that can lead you, remember, moment by moment, you're not actually going somewhere, lead you internally and then have it be reflected externally, lead you to a state of, of well-being and happiness. And have that, that feeling be fulfilled if you, if you have the the willingness to train the habit of, of paying attention to be able to experience the fruits of that moment to moment. Not be waiting for some big happiness in the sky, but to realize the natural happiness of being conscious. Often overlooked because we're looking for some special experience. We need a blockbuster. When in fact we don't, we just need to know Wow, let my body pull me here. Let, my, let, my, let me come out of the tangle of, of fear thinking and, and just, as Rumi says, live in silence for a moment and let it flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being, just unfurling our mind and taking in the simple reality of the present moment. So you could reconstruct that whole teaching I just gave that, some, that I paraphrased in a way, the Four Noble Truths. You could start by saying, there is happiness. There is happiness. And, uh, and there, is, there is a cause of happiness. And then you could say the second half, there is, there is suffering in this life and there's a cause of it. And every part of the Buddha's teaching is who is suggesting incline toward happiness. Cultivate happiness. Abandon happy unhappiness and the causes of unhappiness. But at the same time, the reason that the Buddha, I think, I can't, I didn't speak to the Buddha about this, so I can't really guarantee. But the reason 
the first truth that the Buddha shared, that there's stress, is because we're constantly trying to avoid it. Out of love for ourselves, we try every which way not to acknowledge that no matter what, no matter how marvelous your circumstances, there's suffering in the fact that they change. There's suffering in the fact that we're vulnerable to sickness, to aging, to dying. We're vulnerable to the fact that we, that we um, lose what we have and we often don't get what we want. And there's, there's just all manner of, of experiences that are, that are hard to bear. And his basic prescription for dealing with this, and this is really central to the, the ending of this chronic cause of more misery, the, the prescription for dealing with the stresses as they present themselves, is including restlessness, including dullness, including all the, all the, the grief, the sadness, is turning toward it, welcoming it. And one, want, one has to be in the span of this life, say, yes, when I had a, this experience of difficulty, I opened to it. I did not run from it. I let it, I let it ferment me. I let it tenderize me. I let it, I turned it into the milk of the Dharma. To the, to the I turned it into awakening rather than a story about how unhappy I am and a, an identity of the condition of, of an identity built around a temporary situation. Instead, I experienced suffering directly as it is. And I saw the difference between my story of suffering and my direct experience of it. That's key. So if you just take the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, you hear this amazing doctrine about there being just, I, I cried, I was so happy when I heard it the first time. Somebody is finally saying, there's stress if you're born. There's things that are really hard to bear. Somebody was saying it. It was like a, something in me just, I was so thrilled that somebody was saying it. Now I lost track. I got caught up in thrilling. See, I still have the fetter of, of excessive excitement. <laughs> it makes me forgetful. I'll just go on to talk about happiness. Oh, so often we'll, you know, you'll hear the teachings of, of suffering and there's this maybe a, a somewhat relief, but then somehow you hear the teachings of dukkha. Dukkha is the word for stress or suffering. And then it's a slippery thing. The teaching becomes a view. The view becomes a position, becomes a situation. The situation then becomes the cause of feeling depressed because life's so hard. And because of that, it's more 
like a doctrine, an intellectual doctrine. As a doctrine, initially there may be a little bright faith that comes with it and excitement, but it pretty much makes you really depressed unless you practice and realize it. You realize it directly, where you don't put the wisdom of, of, of dukkha on the shelf, your wisdom shelf, say, I, I, I really resonate with the teachings of the Buddha, and then walk around being unconscious and miserable and not actually practicing. So it's an interesting question for each of us to ask. Are, is the wisdom just sitting on our shelf? And are we satisfied with the identity of being connected and pleased by, by being connected to the teachings of the Buddha and Buddhism and Sangha? Or, and is that enough or are we actually practicing? Are we applying that wisdom every day in our life? Because if you look at the whole body of the Four Noble Truths, the doctrine, the teachings, are their sole purpose is to compel you to practice. And the sole purpose of the practice is to compel you to really directly understand the teachings, not to file it away into a, a doctrine that you can identify with, but to directly realize that this is dukkha. Like if I'm feeling vulnerable, not to try to not to feel vulnerable, try to put myself together, but say, this is vulnerability. I'm really tender. I noticed, you know, in spite of, I practice a lot trying to be, you know, not trying to be. I practice a lot because I am vulnerable. I'm really tender. And I, and I meet with people all day long and often what they, what they tell me, my, my heart moves. In fact, I, I found this beautiful quote. Someone sent it to me. It's a translation of the, of the, from the Polytech Society. It's a description of love, and it's vibrating toward, vibrating toward, which Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as compassion for the world, but I like this vibrating toward. It's, a, it's a, this feeling of resonance with with what somebody's offering. Today, someone who had gone through a, a really horrific divorce, just really painful, big betrayal, they came and said, I, I have a new partner. And it's something really quite delightful about it. And I couldn't resist, I just started, <laughs> it wasn't particularly therapeutic, but I just started bawling. <laughs> and, and I noticed, in spite of all the practice I've had at letting myself just cry, I, I noticed this little bit of defense, like, oh God, maybe, you know, maybe I should, you know, some of that is built into our conditioning, to, not to embrace the tenderness. So I had to embrace the fact that I had this defensiveness about it, that I felt a little uncomfortable with the fact that I just melted down in front of this person. <laughs> So we have a lot of conditioning around this, but as we practice the Dharma, we keep, keep turning toward what's actually true about our nature. We're tender, we're vulnerable. 
else do I want to go? So we don't want to just file it into a, a philosophical category or view. We want to be working with it moment to moment. So if I'm feeling afraid of, if I'm feeling that sense like I was reading from Wendell Berry, if I'm experiencing despair for the world, I don't want to fall into the view of despair, a view of the world. I want to sense what despair feels like. I want to actually recognize what, that, what that's like. And if, you've, if I've been practicing and if you practice, that becomes actually not that difficult. It becomes, like almost every other feeling, a, a changing weather pattern, a changing condition. It's not something I have to be, I have to be afraid of. Uh, it's not something I have to get rid of. It doesn't mean anything bad about me or the world. It just means I'm experiencing despair. So are we adopting, uh, we know despair as a changing mood, but are we living with our moods as changing conditions or are we fighting them? trying to make them go away or distracting ourselves from them. So ideally we want to turn toward. This is what the Buddha did. And you want to be able to say, yeah, I turned toward that, that rather difficult experience. And when I couldn't handle it myself, I asked for help. And in our individualistic, disembodied, isolated culture, the tendency is to think we're the only ones having a ex difficult experience and we often don't ask for help. So that's also why the third jewel from the, from the Buddha's teaching is, is Sangha. And your Sangha could be your, your board of directors, your, closer, your, your near and dear ones. It could be the community you sit with. It could be, but everybody needs, nobody, Nobody does this alone. Nobody does it alone. But why did the Buddha, why was the Buddha called the happy one? Because he did practice, he did toward, turn toward the reality of his existence. Not just philosophically, but moment to moment he stopped. You could say that he didn't gain anything and he didn't go anywhere. He stopped, he looked, he turned toward his internal experience, he looked with his senses open at the world, externally, sickness, aging, dying, so much pain, internally, everything changing, identities, changing depending on who you're with, body changing, moods changing, thoughts changing, unwanted, unexpected, everything happening, unbidden. And he decided, I'm not, I, am not, I am not going to just follow every place my mind goes. I'm not going to turn away from this experience. I'm going to sit here. And with, as, with the earth as my witness, I'm not going to get up until I've, until I've found relief. Until I've found what can allow me to sit in the middle of this world and not be so bound up 
in the cycle of endless dissatisfaction and suffering. I'm going to find out how to be free. It seems like that's what everybody wants. And we're just, we seem to be, humans seem to look for it in all the places, put all their faith in things that can't make them, give them lasting satisfaction. It's a, it's a field of misplaced faith. It's a field of, of humans being so innocent in their desire for relief and so deluded in their methodology for finding it. And it leaves in its wake just as Wendell Berry wrote this amazing poem about when you look around the world, you, if you really look, it's just filled with waste. It's filled with environmental degradation. It's filled with the, with the, the effect of how unskillful unwise, unloving, we actually live our lives. But we don't stop there. We, we try to turn that into the milk of the Dharma. We try to turn it into awakening. So in the Buddha's case, he stopped. He, he saw that so much of the suffering is caused by, by people speaking poorly to themselves, to each other, people killing each other, people exploiting each other with their sexuality, exploiting each other with their, uh, with their power. Um, we see that every day. And that became a cause of dedicating himself to, to uh, impeccable practice of non-harming, just complete commitment from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed, I will not cause harm to the, as, as much as I'm able to, as conscious as I can be, I am committed not to cause any harm with my body, my speech, or my thoughts. I am, to the best of my ability, not going to, um, and with my thoughts, not hold Hold. I might have lots of ill will that comes into my heart. I will not hold anyone in my heart with ill will. And if I do, it's, it's on me. It's not that person's fault, including the politicians. Last time I tried to speak about, uh, the night I spoke a little bit about Judge Kavanaugh, I was told by many that it was jumping the gun about having <laughs> compassion, <laughs> keeping the heart open. And so I understand that these things come in their own time, in their own place. We have to honor, honor the, our rage as well. But we don't want to hold that. We don't want to hold on to it. We want to incline as much as we can to do everything possible to create an inner and outer environment of, of non-harming. That was secret, that was the central uh, practice that the Buddha did. In fact, it said that one of his, one of, in all of his so-called past lives, the one precept he never uh, broke is he never told a lie, which is just hard to even imagine. Not exaggerating, not, anyway. 
So he, he became much happier. And I'm, speak, I'm using him, but anyone becomes happier. They experience a certain kind of bliss of being blameless. I, I actually take a lot of delight. You know, in the Dharma scene, there have been people over the, in the, in the wider scene, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of trans, sexual power transgressions. It's happened, it's happened in the Buddhist world, it happens in every world. But one thing I can say about generally the spirit rock scene, it's pretty much been free of, of transgressions. There's such a deep value of non-harming built in. And I often delight in both being part of a community that's so, that is generally so clean. There's a joy that comes with that. And in, and in my own life, there's a joy that I, that I don't feel like I exploit anybody, that I'm that I practice non-harming every day. And of course, I leak in my speech. That's the one place that I leak. And boy, do I leak. <laughs> and I get snarky and I get, you know, I, I leak. I have, I, I'm, I guess in astrological terms, I have Scorpio rising. And so sometimes my Scorpio stinger comes up. <laughs> And unfortunately, sometimes it gets directed toward authority, like police, and, and then it's, it's just bad. <laughs> but in general, there's a joy that comes from non-harming, and I've experienced that. And it actually makes, when I sit down, and I think it's worth practicing this, I'm not doing it to toot my horn, I'm doing it to encourage others to, to actually clean it up so that when you do sit, you can actually forget the past, forget the future. It's like Rumi said, I'd, I'd worship somebody who could do that. You can do that. Forget the past. That's what we do when we settle our mind into our body. And of course, we do have the karma of what are uh, the things that are unfulfilled in our lives that come to visit but it's much more tolerable if we're not, we're also not reverberating from the effects of having said something that really harmed somebody or, or acted, taken something that wasn't offered. Or. So this is what makes possible the quieting of the mind. And the, when the Buddha did this, his mind, he took tremendous delight in his mind being free of its usual preoccupations. It became just so quiet. So simple, you can do this. As Sri Nisargadatta says, when your mind is like that, free of its preoccupations, quiet, you just start to sense that it's permeated with a light and a love that you've never known, but you recognize it as natural, as your own nature. And then it, that inspires you. And that happened to the Buddha, but he, he didn't get too caught up in the pleasure of that because he, he saw that that was temporary, that feeling of joy of having a mind that's quiet. And he took that joy, that ease, and that quiet, and he, he just kept paying attention. And the more he paid attention, the more he noticed there was nothing that lasts and that everything was coming and going by itself. 
and the more he just saw the, the, the selflessness, the changing nature, the un, the unclingability to everything because it's changing, his mind relaxed, and it, it opened, and he experienced a sense of freedom. A joy, the joy of equanimity, of non-reaction, then the joy of nirvana, of resting in an unconditioned well-being that didn't seem to depend on what was going through his mind. He experienced what he then called the highest happiness, the happiness of freedom. You are, each of us here, is inherently free. Our mind is naturally free, but it's conditioned to cling and condemn and build identities around the changing experience. So a lot of what we will notice flow through our consciousness are things that are painful, part of our conditioning, wanting what I don't have, averse, uh, resisting what I do have, and then personalizing everything. We can start to notice that, and then even all of our personalizing becomes another changing condition that we notice. And that even becomes the cause of our awakening instead of uh, something that keeps binding us, continues to be a fetter to our happiness. So the Buddha suggested that you aim, that you aim your mind, that you aim your intentions, your aspirations to this highest happiness, the happiness of freedom, which of course you find only here you don't go somewhere to, when you walk this path, it's the path, it's the pathless path, it's opening. But to aim for this highest happiness, and you'll see that the, hap the other kinds of happiness come in the wake of that. The happiness of being able to enjoy your senses being open and pleasure, the happiness of non-harming, the happiness of a mind that's calm and concentrated and the happiness of equanimity. All the other kinds of happiness come in the wake of that, that uh, highest happiness. So don't let your practice, don't let the teachings just be uh, some books on the bookshelf on Buddhism or your, just a theory. Put it into practice. Of course, you're all here, so you are putting it into practice. But don't save it for Tuesday night, all day long. Wherever you go, there you are. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. And hope to see you next week. Oh, one last thing. If there's been any benefit to us be to being together, we never forget that we, we're all part of a bigger circle of affection. And let's hope it helps all beings and dedicate our practice this next week. and. The rest of the, our 100-day retreat that we're in the middle of, we'll dedicate it to all beings everywhere. Be happy.